You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and welcome to Middle East Analysis, and we're hurtling towards March. We've entered the Christian season of Lent, a time of reconciliation, thinking about where we are and what we're doing in life, that sort of thing. And to join me to think about where we are and what we're doing in life is Dr. Harry Hagopian, our usual guest on Middle East Analysis. Harry, how are you doing? Hello, James. That's a huge, huge task, <laughs> where <laughs> we are and what we're doing. But yes, Very existential. I'll try to be as helpful as I can. It is extremely uh, existential. It's extremely Socratic. But we'll see how it goes. A combination of Lent and politics. Now, that's interesting. Isn't it? They say you should probably avoid mixing those two particular subjects, but we'll give it a go, shall we? Listen, those who tell you you shouldn't mix them don't understand the biblical verse about God and Caesar. Yeah, totally. And not only that, we are talking about the Middle East and North Africa most of the time. So obviously, you know, try try divorcing those two things. Absolutely. So with that in mind, Harry, um, two topics for today that will uh-huh. give relatively equal weighting to the papal visit won't have escaped your attention that Pope Francis from the 5th to the 8th of March will visit Iraq, an historic first papal visit. I'd love to talk to you about that, particularly the place of the Christians, not just of Iraq, but of the Middle East. And then you drew my attention earlier uh, in the week to a very interesting story with regard to the International Criminal Court saying on the 5th of Feb, or actually a ruling on the 5th of Feb, that it has jurisdiction over war crimes committed in the Palestinian territories. Now, there are many ramifications of that, I am sure, and I'd certainly like your view on it. So two different but big topics this month, Harry. You know, it's very interesting, James, because the papal visit to Iraq, I'll try and put on my ecumenical hat. (laughs) And you and I have had experience with those ecumenical hats in the past. And for the ICC or the International Criminal Court in The Hague, I will put on my lawyerly hat, but also keeping in mind that we're talking about an area where equally uh, law and politics cohabit. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? That in, in many of the realities we'll speak about, law, politics, religion, they, they all mash together in what can be sometimes a very uncomfortable set of bedfellows, I think. In what can sometimes, they can all be found together in the same cauldron. And that's not always an easy thing to disentangle, decipher or explain. No, quite. Now, we're going to start with Pope Francis' visit to Iraq. And of course, it when I was obviously aware of what we were going to talk about this month, it did get me thinking that some 21 years ago, you had some involvement in organising a papal visit or being part of an organisational effort for a papal visit to the region. John Paul II, St. John Paul II's visit to the Holy Land in 2000. Indeed. Indeed, I was. And it was a wonderful time, full of frustration and full of uh, anxiety that things will go well, that we it won't go belly up, that the Pope's uh, health will hold, because any visit by Pope three, four days in this region is extremely 
physical and tiring. So yes, but it was it was an interesting experience, and it is. It was at the end of the day. It was an experience to try and combine expectations coming from the Vatican and the Holy See in Rome, all the way to expectations and hopes, let alone frustrations, of the hosts in the Middle East, and in this particular case, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. So uh, to be able to manage those uh, required a certain uh, degree of skill. And uh, I think that between Italy and uh, the Holy Land, we managed it quite well. There were times when I thought the Pope had had enough and wanted to go and have a nap, but uh, that was JP2 anyway. Uh, sometimes he would be eating and you'd think he would be eating while he was sleeping. But uh, having said that, it went well. And for me, JP2 or uh, the late Pope has a particular resonance in my life because he's the Pope I knew best during my time when I was doing track two negotiations in the region. And therefore, it was a privilege as much as a pleasure to be part of that team and to work alongside well-known, iconic Palestinian Christian names like Patriarch Michel Sabah and others. And actually, it's interesting what you say there about the fact that John Paul II was an old man. Popes usually are, to a certain extent. Francis is 84. And, you know, you're talking about a visit here to a country that certainly on our Western screens, we, we tend to see destruction factions, fighting, oppressed minorities, it, very negative things, international players involved at every turn. And the Pope will travel from south to north. He's taking quite a bit, really, in this visit. So I was just thinking the first question in terms of my interest, do you think that it's a, a safe environment? We've got the backdrop of COVID as well. What do you think this means with regards to the timing and the Pope's willingness to go to Iraq? Well, as you well know, James, and I suspect you know a bit more than I do, given what your real job in life is these days, that uh, the Pope, Pope Francis, has been wanting to go to Iraq, to visit Iraq, for quite a long while now. And it has been put on hold a couple of times because of the fragility and the uncertainties of the country itself. Some people would call Iraq today a failed state. Others would call it a very insecure uh, place. But finally, I mean, the, the news announcement came that he's going to try and go from the 5th to the 8th. And I say try to go because there are two things that uh, happened which sort of make me slightly cautious now, we know about his age. We know that he's not in the best of health. We know that the man goes around the world with one lung and that he's 84. When he walks these days, when he talks these days, you can see that he's a tired man, even though he hasn't done any foreign traveling for the past year because of COVID-19. He is tired. So age and health are not his natural allies, as they aren't the allies or haven't been the allies of previous popes. But what I add to that are two things for Iraq. One, you mentioned COVID-19 or the pandemic. What you did not perhaps mention is that there has been a surge in coronavirus cases in Iraq over the past week, 10 days. And that worries me because a man with one lung who is not in the best of health 
is has to be extremely careful and when you're going in an environment where the hosts in other words largely the chaldean catholic church and its patriarch its leader but also the other ecumenical churches are going to be so excited sometimes over enthusiastic about the papal visit that they are going to want to basically drag him from place to place from first thing in the morning to last thing in the evening and he's the kind of person who likes people-to-people -people contact. So he's not going to say, oh no, it's time for me to take a nap now, so uh, just let me be. He's going to try and meet as many people as he can. He's going to travel from the south of the country to the center of the country, to the north of the country. So the coronavirus is something that worries me. How much is he going to be able to uh, avoid any uh, consequences of the pandemic, although we know from the pictures we've seen that he's taken the jab, but how much protection would he get from that? And the second thing, which also dampens a little bit my own sense of uh, joy about this visit to Iraq, because Iraq is a country that I hold very highly in my own esteem, is the political security considerations, particularly since there was an attack on a place near Erbil airport only a few days ago. And this means that the country itself is still very much prone uh, to terror attacks, to violent outbursts. And of course, the government is going to do its best to try and avoid anything happening during those three days of the papal uh, visit. But the government itself does not have all the tools in order to implement its security policies. So I'm a little bit uh, concerned about his own enthusiasm and his own flamboyant uh, wish to go to Iraq, as well as the excessive enthusiasm of the host to get this Pope to come and meet the people in order to instill in them a sense of hope at a time where hope is a rare commodity. Now, we'll talk about the Christians of Iraq in a second, and there are a great, great many different Christian confessions in Iraq. But I did want to ask you before that, because I hear the, the, the phrase peaceful coexistence being mentioned a lot. I also hear in dispatches that this is a visit, of course, for the Christians, but for all Iraqis. So my question is, do you believe that this visit will do anything positive for that peaceful coexistence? You know, after the backdrop of Daesh and Al-Qaeda before that and Christian exodus and, and reconstruction of the Nineveh plain and so forth. Do you think this will improve relations between Christians and Muslims? The optimistic in me would wish to say yes. The pessimistic in me would probably say no. So the pessimistic in me, which is halfway between optimism and pessimism, would say that it would have a little surge for the moment and then things will go back to where they were before the visit. So in a sense, I think these visits are more symbols. They're symbolic. They will be there in order to draw attention to the wider world, let alone to Iraqis themselves, that here is a pastor, here is a shepherd coming from Rome who has your best interests at heart, who's coming to make sure that you know that you are not alone, that you have people standing in solidarity with you, despite all the 
travails, all the trials and tribulations that Iraqis in general, including Iraqi Christians, have faced pretty much since the downfall of Saddam Hussein. And therefore, uh, this is very empowering in that moral sense. But would it do anything more on the ground? I'm not sure. It's always nice to see the Pope. He's the foremost authority of the Catholic Church. So he is somebody to welcome, particularly this uh, Pope who's gregarious and a bit chatty. Uh, so that's fine too. However, for me, the importance of the visit is not really only in terms of meeting the patriarchs and the church leaders and even the grassroots, the living stones of uh, Iraq and people who will be able to see him given the rigorous security uh, measures that will be taken, particularly to avoid my fears and anxieties. But it's not even going to the Nineveh plains, going to Ur, the birthplace of Abraham and all these. This is all very nice. It's a nice gesture to show recognition of the biblical contribution that Iraq has made to the Christian faith in general. But for me, the preeminent item on the agenda and the most critical is the meeting that the Pope is meant to have if he were to go, if nothing happens at the last minute, and I hope it doesn't, the meeting he's meant to have with Ayatollah Sistani in Najaf in the south, because Ayatollah Sistani within Shia Islam, and Iraq is in its majority Shia Islam, that he is the predominant, preeminent, first, foremost authority, I'm using lots of superlatives here, James, authority uh, for Shia Islam, not only in Iraq. In Iraq, he definitely is what is known as a marja'iyah, an authority that people go to in order to ask for advice and counsel. But he's also considered equal to the ayatollahs in Iran. So the meeting between uh, the head of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is hierarchical, and the head of Shia Islam, certainly in Iraq, but further afield, and Shia Islam is not hierarchical, the two coming together, I think, will give the most prominent uh, message to everybody in Iraq that here are two senior elderly clerics who are meeting together in order to try and make relations, interfaith relations in the country more equable, more uh, easier in a sense. And I think that this is something in a previous life, James, and I'm not divulging any uh, state secrets, in a previous life, I was very keen on having the Pope go to Iraq, not to go through the whole rigmarole of three days of unending meetings, but particularly to go and meet Ayatollah Sistani in order for the two of them to come out with a declaration, a fatwa of sorts, an edict of sorts, which would say that Christian and Muslim Iraqis are all equal citizens of the Republic of Iraq. And I hope that this is what the outcome will be, and probably this is what he will be remembered for 
more generally across Iraq rather than his meetings with the Christians who are an ever-decreasing, ever-dwindling minority in the country, let alone in the region. Well, I don't know if you can hear me scrawling sharp lines, but I'm putting my, my pen through about three questions I was going to ask you. So well done. <laughs> not, only, not only have you kept this podcast nice and tight, but, but um, w- yes, we, we've covered some ground, which is, which is excellent. The only other point that I'd, I'd written by my how is the Shia leadership viewing this was that Shia Islam makes up around about 65% and Sunni Islam 35% of the Muslims in Iraq. Is that right? Yes, something like that. I mean, statistics are never a very reliable science across the... Uh, Middle East and North Africa because people want to maintain the peace by not basically giving the impression that there are majorities, there are minorities in the country, and I don't like both those words. But uh, uh, the, the reality numerically in Iraq, as well as the same applies to Lebanon, the same applies to Israel, Palestine, people shy away It applies to Syria these days because a lot of the Christians have left since the revolutionary uprisings. They don't like to dabble too much in statistics because statistics might also indicate weaknesses or chinks in the different faiths' armors, and therefore they avoid them. But yes, your stats are more or less correct. And in a sense, if I were to sort of look at the whole visit and predict the visit, because it certainly hasn't happened yet, if I were to look at it from above and see what is it going to do, it's going to do all these things, the north, the south, the center of the country, it's going to talk with Christians, it's going to affirm and stand in solidarity with them, it's going to build bridges with Islam, it's going to visit the Kurdish northern regions of Iraq and go and visit some biblical places. But Over and above all this, what I'm hoping, and I'm not sure it's going to happen, I've seen this many times where expectations have been raised and then have come down in the face of brutal reality, is that uh, it would allow, it would encourage Christians in Iraq and across the Middle East, North Africa, as well as Christians in the West who will be following this visit as well, it will provide them with a certain sense of reality, a reality take on what is the identity, the cultural, religious, political sense of what makes a people, how do they relate to themselves and to others. And this is something that goes into the whole uh, discussion about exceptionalism and is there one or not, cultural realities and all this. And I'm hoping that this will be something that will also help those Iraqis in the first place since he's visiting Iraq, but across uh, wider regions and continents to ask the question, who are we, indigenous Christians, who are our sisters and brothers across the waters, and how do we understand the realities that we face, whether that reality is uh, enculturation, whether that reality is uh, uh, assimilation in some cases, not necessarily the best thing to happen, or uh, in some cases, and Iraq has had its fair share of that, probably in my books, the worst share of the whole region, its elements of persecution. So 
I hope these questions, which are uh, epistemological, uh, existential questions, which are also faith-related, by the way, will also come up so that we go beyond, oh, let's help them, give them money, or let them help us by telling us how bad the situation is, that we'll go back from that a little bit and remember that the carrot and the stick go together. It's not one or the other. That's a really fascinating point, actually. And you are dancing on the grave of my questions here. They've all gone. Um, But the one thing I would say is, you know, you make an interesting point because in this country, perhaps we think of the Protestant Christian confessions and uh, Catholic and Orthodox. But when you're looking into the Middle East, the wider Middle East, you're talking Syriacs, Maronites, Copts, Chaldeans, Greek Catholics, Armenians, of course, as you will testify to, many Orthodox confessions. I mean, it's it, I would say it's more complicated, but there are many, many Christian confessions in the Middle East, North Africa. And you made a really good point about, you know, there is that question of how we as Christians view the Christians of the Middle East, because it's easy to, to look through our Christian lens and presume others are feeling somewhat the same or you know it's a shared faith and so on and so forth but it's actually there are elements that are very different in that lived in reality aren't there the a lot of questions within that statement of you james first of all you're absolutely right uh, iraq like pretty much many other countries syria lebanon jordan palestine are a mosaic of different uh, christian communities with their different traditions and their different churches coming together, sometimes awkwardly, sometimes more smoothly, in what we facilely called ecumenism. So in a sense, that is quite true. And Iraq is a very good example of that. Iraq is also a very good example of a country that before the first and second Gulf Wars had something like, now again, we come to figures and stats and different people use different figures uh, to buttress or support their own arguments. I would say that there were roughly around, let's say, just under a million Christians across Iraq before the two Gulf Wars. Now, that number has dwindled to something like uh, 250,000 to 300,000. And a lot of that is political. A lot of that is socioeconomic. People seem to forget when when uh, agencies start talking about, oh, persecution is making all Christians uh, leave the region. I would sort of look at that a little bit with... Uh, diffidence, to put it mildly, because a lot of these people are leaving not because of the political situation. They're in the same boat as all others because they come from the region, they were born there, but because of the socioeconomic uh, realities, the number of uh, Arab Christians across the region I've spoken with over the years who've told me, Harry, yes, there is awkwardness, there is discrimination in some cases, uh, there, is, there are incidents that happen where you immediately have to go and uh, put down or put out the bushfires. All this is a reality when you put a, a smorgasbord of different backgrounds, cultures and ethnicities together. However, they have told me the reason we're leaving and going to Canada, to Australia, somewhere else, is because we want to make sure that we can put food on the table and we can provide our children with a better education and a better future than they have today here because of the aggregate realities of the region. It's not one reality, it's all of them coming uh, together. So in a sense, yes, 
the Christians are challenged in the region, but so are others. Muslims are equally challenged. Kurds are equally challenged in Iraq. So it's not just one at the expense of the other. And to sort of sit somewhere in Canberra, in London, in uh, Brussels, in uh, Washington, D.C., and then pretend that we know what's good for these people is wrong, in my opinion, because that is serving our purposes, not the purposes of the people we are meant to serve through those agencies. And it doesn't all begin with money and end with money, nor does it all begin with uh, goody-two-shoes and end with uh, goody-two-shoes. There are other realities that we know in the West and they know in the East. And the question is, how do you maintain an equal relationship? Not one of giver and taker, but one of two peoples talking to each other openly and frankly. And that openness and that frankness gets uh, masked, camouflaged, hidden, lost at times in those narratives and those conversations. Well, let's hope that there are plenty of those conversations uh, at all levels, on camera, off camera. And let's, of course, hope that this is a, a very positive visit all round. Harry, can moving... I just add one thing there, James? Of course. I will stop. Uh, you're absolutely right with your wish, but it needs action. It needs an effort to understand and openness to accept the other person's viewpoint and not sort of say, oh, yes, I'm listening to you, but you don't really know what you're talking about. And then at the end of the day, I think that this Pope particularly, given his gregarious and very sort of human approach to things and his very Jesuitical philosophy, is very well placed to show to others that I'm coming here not as your boss, but as somebody who wants to share to learn as much as to teach. And now we're moving on to a section where I am hoping to learn from you, <laughs> from you Harry, um, because I find this, this ruling of the International Criminal Court very interesting, but I kind of feel I don't have the tools to get to grips with it, to unpack it, to understand what is tangible and what is, you know, perhaps symbolic and, and you know, binding nonetheless. But let's talk about that ruling of the 5th of February, where the ICC said that it had jurisdiction over war crimes committed in the Palestinian territories. Now, of course, broadly, that was welcomed by Palestinians and criticised by Israel, as one might expect. But again, and, and I hope I'm not going to be too ignorant here, you then have the other players. The US feels it's unfair, as Israel obviously is not a state party to the Rome Statute that established the ICC in 1998, I believe, and came into force in 2002, and hence, obviously, therefore, isn't a member of the ICC. And then you've got Palestine. The Palestinian Authority gained formal membership in 2015, I believe. You know, there are other things in place, such as the ICC prosecutor Fatou Bensouda will be replaced, I believe, later this year by a British barrister, Karim Khan, as the new prosecutor on a, a nine year term. Um, so lots of interesting things at play here for, for us in this country and for, for the, the wider audience. In practical terms with this ruling, what does it mean? Is it sort of future thinking and hence now this is set in stone this will apply from here on? Or can it retrospectively look at things that have happened in the past and lead to a raft of historic prosecutions against Israel or for that matter, Hamas or the Palestinian Authority? 
I, I don't quite understand kind of what it means in practical terms. Okay, to put this into its proper setting, James, let me start off by basically confirming what you just said, that the ICC affirmed on the 5th of uh, February, so just about a couple of weeks ago, that the court, that it had territorial uh, jurisdiction according to one of its articles in the statute, Article 12, over the occupied Palestinian territories. In other words, this opened the way for the prosecutor to investigate war crimes and crimes against humanity that have taken place in those occupied uh, Palestinian uh, territories. You're also right in saying that the Palestinians were cock a hoop about this because at long last they managed to get this on the international agenda. This has been something that's been brewing for a very long time. At the beginning, they couldn't do it because there was no recognition of Palestine as a state, whether virtually or practically. And then after that, there were also considerations that if we do this now as Palestinians, we are going to basically incur the wrath of uh, the US administration, particularly during the four years of the Trump and Pompeo administrations, that we shouldn't do this because we're already having to fight so many issues. We don't want them to sort of increase the pressures on us. Now that Trump has left and gone to play golf in Florida and Biden is the new uh, president, they applied and uh, the application was accepted by the prosecutor, but the prosecutor of the ICC was clever. She didn't want to say, yes, I have the right and we accept to, uh, to look into these crimes uh, in the occupied territories according to, our, uh, to the articles of our statute. It asked the opinion to see whether this is acceptable and whether she does have jurisdiction to look at those, uh, at those crimes. And the, the really controversial issue started when the answer was, yes, you do have jurisdiction. So the Palestinians, as I said, were very happy, but so were others, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, uh, UN, United Nations Rapporteurs, for instance, people like Michael Link or Nils Melzer, uh, also were happy because they believed that this is a positive step towards accountability. And what does accountability mean? Accountability is not an abstract word or shouldn't be an abstract word. It means that the responsibility and consequences for actions taken. For the, all the people, you, you mentioned the 2014 war in Gaza and the atrocities there. I will add to that the march of the return in Gaza, the people who were killed there. I will also talk about the settlements that are being built on uh, Palestinian lands across uh, the length and breadth of Palestine, which has also led to a lot of violence. But I also add to it, some of the excesses and crimes that might have been committed by Palestinian factions, whether in Gaza or elsewhere. So the prosecutor now has, in theory, the mandate to look at those. So therefore, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the UN reporters are happy. But then, as you also mentioned, Israel is very unhappy. Its prime minister equated this decision, in my opinion, humbly 
very wrongly with anti-Semitism, but also it got the disapproval of the United States and of Australia. Why? Because they claim that it's a dangerous imposition of multilateralism that violates this sacrosanct idea of national sovereignty and the normal political process of negotiations. Yes, sovereignty and negotiations, but we've been negotiating for 53 years without any outcome. So whether in the case of Palestine or even elsewhere, Afghanistan, CDR or others, the ICC is something I would put according to the Rorschach inkblot psychological test. What is this psychological test? If you haven't, by the way, heard of the Rorschach test, it basically allows observers to look into their deepest fears, let alone their most hopeful fantasies, in this case, the Palestinians with their fears about what's happening on their land and their fantasies about what the court might deliver, or else, conversely, to dismiss the whole exercise as a meaningless game, which is what Israel and Prime Minister Netanyahu on the threshold of a fourth uh, parliamentary election wants us to uh, believe. So what does this mean? This means that in theory, the ICC's prosecutor, and you're right, her name is Fatou Ben Souda, she is a Gambian, she is going to leave her post in June, she will be succeeded by Karim Khan, who is a British lawyer, a very well-known international lawyer. And by the way, Fatou Ben Souda succeeded another Argentinian lawyer, Luis Ocampo, who incidentally, James, was appointed upon the recommendation of Samantha Power in the US. He was a Samantha Power nominee. And he also received plenty of uh, criticism at the time for resolutely not pursuing cases against the United States, whether in Iraq or in Afghanistan, since we talked about Iraq now, but pushing for prosecution of the Islamic State for crimes against Yazidis, for instance. So what does the prosecutor do? In theory, it can investigate the crimes, it can request arrest warrants, it can prosecute those on trial, and it can do this retroactively, so it does not have to do it from the 5th of February 2021 onward. But as I said, it could look at the behavior of the protagonist during the Gaza war. So this basically is what happens. But the golden rule for me is constant. Without accountability, there will be no resolution to this conflict. So in one sense, I'm happy that this has been put on the international agenda. Now, if your next question is going to be, what are the practical realities? That is a different answer that I will give you. That wasn't my next question strictly, but it was on the list. So what are the practical realities then, Harry? Well, whether you, have, whether you are joyful or you're alarmed, it is a fact for me that the ICC is a judicial body. Yes, it's not a UN body. It's an independent judicial body that also relies on political buy-in. But the slow pace of its work in Palestine, I mean, this agenda, this brief has been there for a number of years. And in a sense, its dubious legacy is why I would recommend 
that we temper our expectations that they're going to suddenly turn around and Fatou Ben Souda, before she leaves in June, is going to deliver uh, justice. This is not going to happen. I remind you and I remind our listeners, for instance, to the Goldstone report that came out in 2009. Did it change anything? That was pre-2015, pre-Palestinian virtual state realities, pre the application. Did it do anything? No, it didn't do anything. Uh, but the, the fact that it is now being discussed, that to me is a gain in its own right. Whether the wheels of justice will move uh, fast, whether uh, something will come out of it or not, is a big moot point at the moment, not least because I'm sure you're aware, as are plenty of our listeners, that there are those who've written that the decision of the ICC to have ju territorial jurisdiction in the occupied territories and they define those territories as being the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, or what I call Arab Jerusalem, that this was wrong, that they didn't have the competence to do that, because although they said we are not binding the international community on this definition of borders, the fact that they did it almost gives the implication that that is what we're talking about when we're talking about occupation. So some people have said, no, 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 this is wrong, this is not what could be done, and therefore the detractors of the AC ICC are saying this. And then there are the others who are saying, no, there is uh, the reality that the General Assembly of the UN accepted Palestine as an observer state, and therefore the ICC has the right uh, to, uh, to do this. What I'm saying, what I'm trying to say in this legal verbiage of mine, is that we should not only temper our expectations as to the outcome, but also as to the time uh, frame and take into consideration some of the issues that have been put out in front of the legal community, such as, and I'll throw this in, you might have it on your uh, piece of paper, Oslo or international law, which one applies in this case? That is a very valid point. And I've discussed this and I've addressed this in many on occasion over the past uh, two weeks. So these are things that we have to keep in mind as we look at what is happening with the ICC. And of course, with uh, Karim Khan becoming the new prosecutor as of June, it might actually change the direction. Why? Because the court said we have jurisdiction to entertain this case and to look at it. The question is, will it in fact look at it? How will it look at it? What will be the legal criteria of the case itself as opposed to what happened prior to the case, which was, do we have jurisdiction or don't we have jurisdiction on the case? Now, two quick things from me on this in terms of the voices that have, that have been raised about this you know the noises they're making are exactly what, what you'd have expected them to make from a palestinian perspective from an israeli perspective from a u.s perspective but in my very first question when i was talking about it being symbolic well look of course it's more than that but you made the point as well about how the icc prosecutor is is elected if you like to the role and therefore 
although they make good noises about being guided strictly by independence and in uh, its impartial mandate and so forth, you did hint at the fact that certain things weren't prosecuted that one might have expected to be prosecuted. So how independent actually is the ICC? That's a very good question and a very tricky question to answer because no matter what I say and which way I bat, it's going to create problems. But this is why you're right. I hinted at it when I talked about the previous prosecutor, Luis Moreno Campo, being a Samantha Power nominee, how he was excoriated in some circles for pursuing some cases and not doing the others. Well, in the case of the current prosecutor, for instance, Ben Suda, the ICC docket has preliminary examinations in countries ranging from South America to the Philippines. So she has extended, because there was always the accusation that the ICC is only looking at cases in Africa, as if only cases in Africa uh, concern war crimes and crimes against humanity, and that everywhere else life is hunky-dory, which of course it is not. So there is that perception. But that also, to me, hits the head of the nail in a different way. And that is the cultural realities of the different people, the cultural baggage that people bring with them when they take such a prominent position as prosecutor of the ICC or any other public forum such as this one. You always have your own beliefs and no matter how much fair-minded and how much fair and neutral you try to be, there is always an element there that sort of says, yes, but. And in a sense, this has become very clear for me. Who are the people against this uh, jurisdiction, territorial jurisdiction of the ICC? Israel in the first place with the uh, Benjamin Netanyahu shouting right, left, and center, but you also have America, the United States, you also have Australia. Who are the people who are supporting? They are people like human rights organizations, justice, and the United Nations. Who are the people who are keeping silent? The Arab world. Why? Because each one has its own set of political interests and considerations. We know where the USA stands on this. I mean, during Trump's time, when the current prosecutor wanted to pursue cases against the United States in Afghanistan, Trump uh, and Pompeo were going around censoring her and uh, applying sanctions against travel and what have you against her. Now, Biden has a different, more diplomatic, more resilient, more creamy way of dealing with these issues. But the United States also has its own considerations and expectations. So do others, whereas HRW, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the United Nations are very clear about what it means to address this issue. It means that we're trying to find a resolution. How do we find a resolution? We go to the heart of the conflict, and that is called justice. Whereas for the Arab countries, and I'm only giving the Arab countries as an example, I can give you others as well, they're being pretty much mum about it because they don't want to offend anybody. And now that there is a love-hate relationship between the Arabs and the Western world, particularly the United States and the Gulf, they are very careful how to manage this relationship. So they don't want to say anything which could be used against them. So 
for the purposes of the ICC, there is a state of Palestine and its borders include the West Bank and Gaza. Now, although the court did acknowledge that it's not competent to determine matters of statehood that, for instance, would bind the international community in negotiations, for its own purpose, for the purposes of the Rome Statute alone, the judges in their majority decided to do so anyway. So it depends on which way you look at it, but fairness is a very difficult question because fairness and the law aren't necessarily always bad uh, fellows. I have been asked specifically as a public international lawyer, Harry, is it international law or is it the Oslo Accords that are the reference in this case? And I've said clearly that it is not the Oslo Accords, it's international law. And in a sense, it's ironic that for a country like Israel, which is the occupying power, that has trashed the Oslo Accords and done everything to dismiss them as being irrelevant, suddenly they're bringing the Oslo Accords back into the narrative by saying, oh no, the Palestinians can't rely on international law, they have to go back to the Oslo Accords, which says that they have to do this, that, and the other. So in a sense, there is always the political insertion, the political vaccine that is given to those legal cases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, my final question on this, um, and I'll, I'll try and make it possible to give a reasonably short answer to it, is that from what you've said, and it's been fascinating, you know, clearly it suits certain powers, regimes to either question the IC's independence or the way it goes about its business. I mean, I guess, especially if you're in its sights, really. But looking forward, because we did talk about retroactive type of prosecutions, but looking forward, is this something that might just get Israel and the Palestinians to just be a little bit more careful in terms of human rights in the future? Of course it does. And this is one of the, the advantages or the benefits of having anything like the ICC. It's not going, as I said a couple of times already, it's not going to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's probably even not going to rush into a decision as to whether war crimes were committed or crimes against humanity were committed by Israel in Gaza, by Hamas in Gaza, or whatever. It's going to drag its feet a little bit, particularly with the new prosecutor, because there are always political implications. But the fact remains, and for this I take you a little bit away from the ICC and Palestine, James, and I take you to Syria. Why? In Syria now, we know, you and I have spoken about Syria so many times in the past, about what's happening there. In Syria, we can now say that the regime is nominally, and I say nominally because in reality it's not, but nominally is in control in a way it wasn't a few years ago. A lot of people are despondent. They say, oh, we... The Syrian people made so many sacrifices. The Syrian people gave so many what they call martyrs, what I call victims against injustice. All this, the country, parts of the country is still in rubble. Assad is still in his palace, although the people who run the country are the Iranians and the Russians and a few others like the Turks and the Americans, I suppose. But people are despondent. They say to me, Harry, it's all lost. He committed so many crimes. He poisoned his uh, citizens. He threw 
poison bombs, he did this, he did that, the sarin gas, all those things that Obama even put different red lines and then pretty much deleted those lines. So what? Is it lost? And what I tell them, no, it's not. There is a huge amount of work that's being done about crimes committed by the regime in Syria, which are perhaps being saved in archives when the time comes, and the time ultimately comes because it's a wheel that, it's a pendulum that swings one way and then back the other, those crimes, somebody is going to be answerable to them. In Syria, with the regime, just as in Palestine, with those people who are committing those crimes. So it has a deterrent effect that is incredible. And let me just throw this in. I don't usually do this with you. I do this in my YouTube episodes, but I'll do this with you as well, James, if you'd allow me. I mean, there is so much that's written and said about this. But if our listeners go online, they can find a book by Laurie Allen. Laurie Allen is professor in anthropology at SOAS University in London. She wrote a book which was published by Stanford University Press, SUP, called A History of False Hope, Investigative Commissions in Palestine. I think that would give an idea from an academic perspective as to where we are with this whole ICC business. But somebody, and to finish at least from my end on this note, somebody was telling me the other day, somebody who works in one of the well-known media agencies in our country, in the UK, uh, she was telling me, she's a producer of a program, a political program. She said, look, we had an Argentinian who got into all sorts of uh, problems. We had a Gambian, Fatou Ensuda, who also had her fair share of antagonisms. Now we are going to get a British uh, lawyer, and of course we know the British policies, and we know that it's not going to go uh, anywhere. And my answer to her was, the wheels of justice turn very, very slowly, sometimes frustratingly slowly. Look at the backlog we've got in the high court in this country. The wheels of international law, public international law, spin or turn even more slowly. So today, a point was made. I go back to my uh, Rorschach inkblot test, the psychological test, to say that it has validated fears, but it has also validated hopes. And this might come in handy in the future. Somebody has put down a marker. What will this marker do in the future? That's not for me to say, you know what I'm going to say, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> Validating hopes. I like that, Harry. You're at your pessoptimistic best, I think, with, <laughs> with that, that last um, comment. But then, you know, we've been doing podcasts for nearly 12 years, so that could be a history of lost hope when I think of all the, the barrel bombs and the other things we've discussed and the, the, the hideous way man has treated man. Uh, sometimes I really value our podcasts and our conversations. I call them in conversations more than interviews, although I always monopolize the larger part of the conversation. <laughs> the fact remains that I speak not as an institution. I'm not defending this interest or that interest. I'm looking at things individually as Harry. People can listen to it. They agree with it. As we say in Arabic, 
Ahlan Wusahlan. They don't agree with it, as we say in Hebrew, Chaval, pity. So that's basically where I am. Very good. Now, look, we're closing in on an hour, but I did want to throw a little wild card in just because I'm very interested in your views. And, and it might be a lighter note to finish on. I know you like your pop culture references from time to time and, and to boldly go where no one has gone before, as we say these days. The UAE has kind of pushed its way into the space exploration mission, hasn't it? With its uh, Emirates Hope mission to Mars. Quite interesting because whenever you look at the sort of space programmes globally, obviously you think America, you think Russia, the UK had a, a little bit of input there and, and other countries as well in recent times. But I was quite surprised that this was a UAE endeavour until I thought rather obviously about it that you need money, don't you, for space exploration these days. So do you have a view at all on the UAE joining the space exploration mission? James, you've known me for the better part of 20 years. Do you think I don't have a view on any, on something? <laughs> <laughs> what is your view? <laughs> That's better. What is <laughs> What is my view? You talked about the UAE mission to Mars. You also should add that the NASA just managed to get the rover down on the surface of uh, Mars successfully, and that was no mean feat. The UAE, yes, we know the countries that were for decades involved in uh, space exploration. We also know that I'm a big fan of Star Trek, and I also realize that what we know today is nothing but the tiniest tip of a very huge galaxy, number of galaxies, of a very huge iceberg. So what we really know is nothing. We get excited when we go to Mars, when Mars is nothing but like my next door neighbor here in London, uh, as far as Earth goes. But what the UAE has done is to show first, that Arab science and Arab potential can get us into space. Now, the fact remains that a lot of the scientists who made that possible were scientists from Germany, Britain, and other places. But it doesn't matter whether it was facilitated by an Arab country, depending on how you describe Arab these days, by the way, but facilitated by an Arab country, on, uh, devised on Arab soil, with largely Arab money, we managed to get to Mars. Now that, to me, is something that is to behold. Why? First of all, it shows an element of stretching out, reaching out, that the Arab world is not only here to enforce the stereotypes we have of it, which is radical Islamists, a bunch of terrorists, who fight amongst each other and do nothing but uh, uh, weaken each other's uh, capacities or capabilities. So this is one of those things that was really good. But it also made me realize, and I hope it will make a lot of our listeners also realize, that the Arab world and the Muslim world had a huge civilizational heritage and culture in the past. We're talking about sciences, we're talking about mathematics, we're talking about astrophysics, we're talking about a lot of things where the Arabs contributed to our modern civilization before they pretty much dived down, I wouldn't even say to the surface, but well below the surface. So in a sense, it's a reminder of where the Arab world was in the past and where it is trying, or at least some of them who have the potential resources 
to do now. Now, this is one statement. The second statement that I would say, I would make, is that I've always said in the past to friends and colleagues and associates when we've discussed the Middle East, North Africa, and Gulf regions, that the Gulf region, and this is why I was so involved with the spat between Qatar and on the one hand and Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates on the other. I was so involved because I thought one region that was functioning is now also dysfunctional and politically becoming dyslexic. So what is it about the Arab world? Are they so good at destroying each other's hopes or can they build those hopes up? So in the past, I've said the UAE, look, it's tried to give freedom to its uh, women. It's tried to facilitate all sorts of things in the country. It even hosted Pope Francis. We were talking about Iraq a little while ago. We didn't talk about uh, Abraham and uh, the visit to uh, the United Arab Emirates that Francis did a couple of years ago with the Mufti of Egypt and others. That also was meant to herald a station in interfaith relations. That it's done all these things. And I always looked at the UAE and said, a progressive country that is showing the way actively and concretely to other countries that if they basically stop navel gazing, the Arab world can go back slowly to where it was. And that would be by empowering its young citizens because it's the Arab countries have very, in their majority, young, empowering them to move forward. All this is great. But then what do I see? I see that the United Arab Emirates becomes involved in the war in Yemen becomes the leading country in counter-revolutionary forces against the revolutionary uprisings that basically represented the aspirations of a huge generation of young Arabs across the whole Middle East, North Africa. They were clueless. They didn't have the experience. They didn't have the education how to run, manage, set up institutions. But they were discussing their hopes. And what do I see? I see that the United Arab Emirates is one of those countries that is coming down hard on those, trying to put dictators back in power in order not to shake the status quo and not to disrupt vested interests. All this is happening. I see that if you go to the United Arab Emirates to have fun, you can. But if you speak one word out of turn or you post one tweet out of turn, then you either end up in jail if you're a citizen, even if you're not, or you get your passport confiscated or you're thrown in prison or you go, you're thrown out of the country. So the country is becoming two things, a dichotomy of progress and openness on the one hand, and also on the other, strict, rigorous, dictatorial uh, uh, set of rules that muzzle citizens and do not allow them to express their own opinions. And those two are, at the moment, the two ways I see the United Arab Emirates as one country among six in the Gulf and as one country upon 27, 28, whatever, in the Arab League. So this is where they are. On the one hand, aiming for Mars, aiming for space, aiming for openness, aiming for interfaith conviviality. On the other, muzzling your citizens, throwing them in jail if they dare say anything that 
the authorities don't like and making it impossible for the Arab generations to breathe out freedom and dignity because they have the money and they can stop that happening. And it is this tug of war in the United Arab Emirates that is the lens through which I look at the planet, the red planet, and the way the UAE has managed to get into the space race. And it's the way I also look, and sorry to harp back on it because listeners are going to be fed up with it, the Rorschach test that on the one hand you have the positive, on the one hand you have the negative. Which one will win? To be honest with you, having been looking, observing, talking about the region for so long, I really don't know. And unlike maybe other analysts or observers, I do not shy away from saying, I don't know. Well, Harry, we're closing in on an hour there, just past an hour. It's been absolutely fascinating. I did want to finish on a high note, but you've gone and been rather fair about it. So we finished on a high note, perhaps in terms of altitude. But in terms of uh, realities, you know, it is like giveth and taketh away, isn't it? It's, it's an interesting region that I'm hoping and praying we'll talk about for many more years, but it comes with its downside. You give with one hand, you take away uh, with the other. The whole world is like that, James. You and I are long enough in the tooth to know that. I'm not saying that we're living in an Elysium and they're living in a dystopic reality. No, but there are ways of doing and there are rules and regulations and there are institutions that define behavior. In some places, those institutions are stronger. We saw that what happened in Washington, D.C. with the Trump-Biden standoff. And we see it in the West as well. In other parts of the world, that institutional sense is not as clear as we would, uh, perhaps you and I, we would wish it to be. Having said that, I wish Pope Francis bon voyage and a good uh, journey if he undertakes it. And I think there's an 80% possibility that he will. And I also hope that the ICC, if nothing else, will be a marker for future uh, researchers, future practitioners, future politicians to know that there is the positive and there is the negative. Harry, thank you ever so much indeed and um, much to talk about next month, I would say. I hope so and uh, I apologise both to you and to our listeners for having made this far longer than we both thought it would be. But the topics were, well, at least as far as I'm concerned, the topics were quite compelling. And your last high altitude question was also compelling because it's one of those chagrins, one of those sad realities I have in my life about how the Arab world could be at that high altitude if only it stopped looking at itself from a lower altitude. Well, that's something we'll both look forward to in the future, I do hope. Harry, thank you ever so much and look forward to speaking again next month. My pleasure, James.